First uh, Corinthians nine. Please turn your Bibles there. Again, we're going to be in verses nineteen through twenty-seven this morning. And uh, this week, I googled LeBron James workout routine. Not because I was interested in participating per se, just to see what it was. Uh, there were nearly a million results. 933,000, I think, to be exact. And then I googled LeBron James diet. 3.5 million results. Google found, I'm sure, in, in the nick of time. Evidently, though, there are more people willing to eat like LeBron James than who are willing to exercise like LeBron James. It probably shouldn't be too much of a surprise. Uh, imagine waking up early and, and doing weightlifting in the morning and, and cardio early in the afternoon, and then, then playing a sport in the evening seven days a week. To some of us, that might sound like a good change of pace. But seven days a week, and being very careful to eating, only eating lean meat like chicken, maybe some pasta before the game, uh, sticking only with fruits and nuts for snacks, drinking protein shakes often. Of course, you have to pay all these people to tell you what to eat and, and how to work out and how often, all that kind of stuff. All for the love of the game and the money that can be made through the game. Uh, we are, aren't we, a sports-crazy nation. There's no doubt about it. And there's more to be won uh, playing professional sports than trophies nowadays with, with shoe deals and sock deals and, and shirt deals and hat deals and, and sports drink deals like Gatorade or Powerade or something. Uh, cereal deals. When you win the Olympics, you're sure you're going to be on that Wheaties box, right? Cereal deals, even insurance commercial deals if you're like Peyton Manning or somebody get on insurance commercials. Anything else that you can put a picture of your face on next to in order to sell. From tires, to pens, to candy bars, even fish sticks. And they do that because it works. <laughs> it works. But even when all of that is said and done, everything and anything that can be won in the world of sports can only be enjoyed by the victor as long as they live, as long as they are here on this earth. And compared to eternity, that wouldn't seem to last any longer than, say, a reef made of pine needles, which is exactly what the winners of the Corinthian Isthmian Games won. When they won their contest, they won a crown, which was a wreath of pine needles. Now, do you know why LeBron James sacrifices so much time and energy to make sure his body is in tip-top shape? He does that because he wants to. He does what he does because he wants what he wants, and he wants the things that he values the most. We are all like that. It's no judgment. We're all like that. We all do that. What we value the most is what we will call our gain, what we will call our prize, and our actions always follow. First uh, Corinthians 9. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul's prize and reward was to see the existence and growth of the church in the city of Corinth, the home of these Isthmian games, uh, which we'll see referenced here at the end of this chapter today. And Paul said in verse 15 that he would have rather died than to not have a church exist in Corinth. So he was certainly uh, willing to give up to sacrifice any kind of paycheck that was what the first half of chapter 9 was about. He was willing to sacrifice any kind of paycheck if it meant he could preach the gospel 
and see the church established. His reward for preaching the gospel was not a paycheck. He gave up the paycheck in order to get a reward, which was to preach the gospel and see the birth and the development of this church. In the rest of this chapter, Paul's going to continue with this thought, the idea of being willing to, to sacrifice, to do whatever it takes to share the gospel and, Lord willing, win people to Jesus Christ. So we're starting today in verse 19. He writes this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant. I have enslaved myself to all that I might win more of them. Uh, Paul was nobody's slave, and yet he willingly enslaved himself to everyone with this goal in mind, to win them to Christ. Turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, uh, where James and John, uh, two brothers who were disciples of Jesus, they make a selfish request. And Jesus teaches an important lesson, which Paul has, has put into practice and calls us to do as well. This, this is Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. It says this, uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, these guys are brothers, came up to him and said to him, to Jesus, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. We say, well, okay. We're being bold already, right? These guys were the sons of thunder, right? And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Give us, they're asking, great places of honor and glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. This might be the moment where they go, oh, wait a minute, what did we just ask for? The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant. I think if you're being selfish right now, if, if James and John are being selfish right now, and they're saying, Jesus is saying, yeah, you're going to get the cup that I get, and you're going to get the baptism I get, but you may not get to sit at my right or left hand. They're thinking, well, where's my reward then, right? If they're thinking selfishly, this is not a good deal. And verse 40 continues, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, the other, the other disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, and here comes the lesson, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever uh, would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what does Paul say? For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. 
with this verse also, a pattern is established that we'll see repeatedly today in these verses. And so here's the pattern. Two things. One, there's a willing choice for service and sacrifice. Paul said, I have made myself a servant. And then number two, why? To win people to Christ. That I might win more of them. So we're going to see this pattern of service to win. Service to win. Uh, repeatedly through this passage. And just to be clear, what does Paul mean when he says that I might win more of them? What does it mean to be one to Jesus Christ? And just for an example, when I was 16 years old, a college student bravely called me out and took the time to share with me from a gospel tract not too far different than this one. And I grew up in church, so I already knew what all this said, but I let him go for a while. Okay? But he shared with me uh, that I was a sinner, that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the full penalty of my sin, that if I would repent and ask God to forgive me and to save me, God would do it. And that night, I did that very thing. I did that very thing. I quit running from God. I asked him to forgive me, to save me, to be my Lord. That guy won me to Christ. The Bible says it even better, of course. Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? What? It's hard to believe in Jesus when nobody's ever told you about him. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? We have been. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's Romans 10. This is what Paul means when he says he wants to win people to Christ. He wants to share with them the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He wants to encourage them, plead with them to repent and become followers of Christ. And because Jesus has promised, this is encouragement to us, because Jesus has promised that he is going to build his church, Paul knows and we can know that some of those people who hear the gospel from us will surely respond in faith. They will believe and be saved. So remember, here's the pattern. We're going to see these things. A willing choice to serve to win people to Christ. And we're going to see this pattern among three different groups of people. The Jews, the Gentiles, and also the weak. As in those whose consciences are weak, such as those who had been fearful to eat the meat that had been offered to idols that we learned about in chapter So category one, the Jews. Verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew. That's a sacrifice. In order to win Jews. To those under the law, the Jewish law of the Old Testament, so same people, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. I didn't have to do this. I willingly did this. That I might win those under the law. Remember, Paul was a Jew, a a very zealous one at that. He had become a Pharisee and was a rising star amongst the Jewish leaders until he 
while on his way to go persecute Christians, was one to Christ. By Christ. That's pretty sweet. And now Hebrews 9, among other places in the New Testament, teaches us that the Jews no longer need to abide by the law. There is no, uh, there is no longer any legal obligation for them because, and this is from Hebrews 9, Christ entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ's sacrifice paid for sins once and for all. No more sacrifice needed. Christ's righteousness has been put to our account. All righteousness has been fulfilled. So the law has been fulfilled and we are no longer bound to live under it. But that doesn't mean that doing some of the things the law called for are bad things to do. In Acts 21, Paul went to the temple uh, in Jerusalem with some Jewish believers to, to spend time with them. In Acts 16, Paul circumcised the half-Jewish, half-Greek Timothy. It says, because the Jews were, because of the Jews who were in those places, Paul and Timothy knew that circumcision was not going to save Timothy. They didn't do it for that reason. But they did believe that circumcision would allow Timothy the opportunity the opportunity to share the gospel, to preach the gospel. So they were willing to go ahead with this. Timothy was an adult. So if you want a little motivation, a benchmark, uh, Timothy was circumcised as an adult in order to gain opportunities to win people to Christ. Wow. And the Bible never says, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. (laughs) What are we willing to give up? Uh, Just to give an easier example, we know that the Jewish law forbade the eating of any kind of pork. Okay, so like no bacon, no pork chops, etc. So let's just say, for example, if Paul was meeting any Jewish people for breakfast, if they went to IHOP together or something, uh, he wouldn't feel like he needed to exercise his right to order up a couple strips of bacon. Uh, Why? He would happily forego that freedom in order to prevent any barrier to sharing the gospel with any Jewish people that he was meeting with. Does that make sense? This is as simple as that. Now, category two, the Gentiles, verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. In case the Corinthian believers got the idea that being outside the law means you can get away with doing any sinful thing you like, which some of them thought that, Paul reminds them, we still seek to love God with our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind and strength. We have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. There are things we are not going to do because they don't please God and because we should be busy instead serving, loving God and loving people. The law of Christ is a law of love. Isn't that awesome that we get to do these things because we want to? Because we willingly desire to love people and to love God, and therefore we should do these things that are right. And so to the Gentiles, Paul became as a Gentile. When Paul was offered bacon at the Gentiles' house, he didn't say, Oh, I don't eat that dirty meat, that common meat, you disgusting Gentile. I'm one of God's chosen people. Paul didn't do that. 
Paul didn't flaunt his Jewishness as if it was some kind of first-class Christian standing over and above the Gentile people. There's no, I was here first. You're here because I let you be here. No. He didn't have that kind of attitude. It sounds like when Paul was with the Corinthian people, he acted like them. He ate with them. He dressed like them. As long as what he was going to do wasn't sinful. He was willing to give up his customs and his comforts to reach Gentile people with the gospel. Paul was a missionary traveling about amongst foreign people groups. And he assimilated into the culture as he saw fit in order to reach them. Remember, Christians, this world is not our home. We are ambassadors here. So even though we might feel comfortable, because this is where we've been for a long time, we are missionaries that are sent to this place. Um, did you know, did you know that even though I, and you don't, but did you know that even though I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, the home of the Toledo Rockets, and less than three hours from here, by the way, I never knew where Central Michigan University was until about two years ago. I knew it was in Michigan. And I knew somewhere, I knew it was somewhere in the middle. That's about it. <laughs> I could have told you it was like the maroon and gold. I could have told you that because I'd seen the logos and stuff. But, but you know what? Now, Jessica and I have CMU sweatshirts and sweatpants and t-shirts. Our kids all have hats and shirts and all that kind of stuff too. Fire up chips, right? Uh, we even know when to clap and when to do the woo during the fight song. We know all that stuff. I have been more, I have been to more CMU events, both athletic and musical events, than I ever went to at the University of Toledo. And do you know why? It's not because we're just bored. It's because we want to support you. And because we want to meet other people in the community and we want to support them in such a way that will continue to give us opportunities to share the gospel. That's why. To those in the Mount Pleasant area, we are becoming as those in the Mount Pleasant area that by all means we might win those in the Mount Pleasant area. That's what we're all called to be and to do. Now on the flip side, that's coming here, on the flip side, when an American goes to a foreign country, they do not need to be on a mission to turn all of those people they meet into Americans. If the American missionary goes to, let's say, Tanzania, the American missionary should become more Tanzanian. They should not be trying to Americanize the Tanzanian people. They should be seeking ways to share Christ with those people. And when missionaries come back to visit us and share with us what God's been doing in their ministry, we should be more excited to hear of people representing or repenting and following Jesus than we are about seeing them wearing a suit and tie or a Detroit Lions t-shirt, bless their heart. If missionaries were handing out Western suits to people in other countries, especially countries that are hurting financially, then they might start seeing a bunch of people come, but it won't be for the gospel. Say a prayer, get a suit. You got it, boss. That's not the Great Commission. Paul's not doing that. Paul's not telling us to do that. Instead, he's setting an example of sacrifice. The pattern here is sacrifice, which leads to gospel opportunity. So to the Jews, Paul became like a Jew 
to the Gentiles. Paul became a Gentile in order to win them to Christ. Now, category three, the weak. Again, this is referring to those uh, like in chapter eight, Paul, whose uh, people whose consciences were weak, people who were fearful of doing this or that thing wrong and potentially putting those new rules also then on others, becoming legalistic. Paul says, verse 22, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. If you remember, Paul never told the Corinthian believers that it was in fact wrong to eat the meat offered to idols, but if Paul knew he was going to be eating with someone who believed it was wrong, he wouldn't do it. Even if the meat was super tasty. Even if there was absolutely nothing wrong with it. If abstaining from that meat would provide him an opportunity to share the gospel, Paul was happy and willing to abstain and eat veggies all day. That's fine. Uh, This one is interesting to me because uh, due to what we read in chapter 8, I don't know about you, but my mind goes right back to the relationship between Christians. Because that's what chapter 8 was about. One Christian who has a weaker conscience, another Christian has a stronger conscience who needs to be willing to forego their freedom in order to not cause their brother or sister to stumble or to violate their conscience. But these verses aren't about Christians encouraging other Christians. These verses are about evangelism. So then who are these people who have a weak conscience and are not Christians? Well, I think this. I think these people are people who are struggling to believe that Jesus paid it all. Meaning, if the weak people are are people who are prone to be restrictive and prone to build fences that God has not built in an effort to protect, and if the weak are prone to expect others to follow their thinking and abstain from the same things that they do to require everyone else to live within the limits of their own conscience, which, remember when that becomes a test of fellowship, becomes legalism, a new law, then these people Paul's referring to as weak in chapter 9 may be people who believe they're working to earn their salvation through their efforts of obedience to a law that God didn't write through their abstaining of certain sins that God has not forbidden. These are people who can't get over the idea that they have to be good enough to go to heaven. They believe that if they put all their trust in the finished work of Christ, if they were to put all of their faith in Christ and on his finished work for them on the cross, that somehow in that they're giving up. They're giving up trying and therefore God won't accept them. And church, that's a false gospel. Uh, That sounds like insecurity, doesn't it? And that's what legalism results in. And for these people... Paul does not come in guns ablaze and brashly rebuking these weak ones and flaunting his freedom before them with his bacon and his meat. No, instead, to the weak, Paul becomes weak. He listens. He remains patient. He abstains from things that would be unnecessarily offensive. And he seeks to teach them the truth of Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice and of his imputed righteousness, Christ's righteousness put to our account, and then prayerfully... Lord willing, uh, the weak one who's written their own law in a vain attempt to get themselves into heaven will, by God's grace, have their eyes opened and their heart changed and they will truly be born again. That's the desire. Now, in the end of verse 22, Paul reiterates that formula. 
that he's been using for these three groups of people, I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in those gospel blessings, in its blessings. The gospel is not a party of one. The church does not exist for individuals to shop and be entertained by it. We are sharing together in this endeavor, in this mission. The church is not a place where we go for a good time. We are the church. And that doesn't mean that that being together with uh, the church isn't a good time. (laughs) It is. But it's a cheap imitation, a cheap substitution of a good time if it's all about me. If it's all about you. It's a good or good time, okay? It is a more genuinely rich and enriching time of gathering when it's not about me. When it's not just about you. When we sincerely come together to worship Christ, to selflessly love one another, and to seek to win people to Christ. That's a good time. Now let's think about this too. It was good for Paul to abstain from bacon around the Jews. Good job. It was good for Paul to eat bacon with the Gentiles. Way to go. It was good for Paul to abstain from meat offered to idols uh, with the weak. But none of that by itself is preaching the gospel. Does that make sense? We have to remember that we have not preached the gospel until we have preached the gospel. And here's what I mean. It is nice for us to invite our neighbors for dinner. Do that. It's great that we do things with kids like Sportacular and Bible Release Time and our van ministry. Let's keep that up. It's great that we're planning to have a carnival with food and games and and bouncy houses this summer for VBS. I hope you're excited about that and ready to serve with us this summer. But a bouncy house is not the gospel. Our vans do not transmit the gospel by osmosis. Okay, Ford doesn't include that feature. Basketball games do not convert people. And if taking communion doesn't save you, which by the way doesn't, neither will the lasagna that you gave your neighbors and friends this week. These are all good things. Keep doing all of these things. And those good things become great things when... They lead to us sharing the gospel. Methods are good. It's good to plan. It's good to reach out. It's good to seek to do things that are kind and loving and helpful. Keep doing that. Jesus told us in Matthew 25 that when we feed the hungry, give thirsty the thirsty a drink, when we welcome the stranger and clothe the naked, we have done these things to him. Keep doing these things. And, and, Let's make sure we keep sharing the gospel when we do all these these things, these ministries. Or, I said keep, or start sharing the gospel with the people you're meeting through these things. In Sunday school a few months ago, we watched a missionary, a video of a missionary in Europe. He shared his evangelism strategy. And this has just stuck with me. You ready? Mind-blowing. You ready? Pray. Meet people, tell them about Jesus. You don't have to really work hard to memorize that, do you? Pray, meet people, 
tell them about Jesus. That plan really works well when you do it. We pray because we know God is the one that gives the increase. We meet people either through intentional ministry, like a VBS carnival, stuff like that, or just in everyday life. You know people who need Jesus that nobody else here knows. You tell them. Uh, we pray, we, we meet people, we tell them about Jesus. It should be strange to us that this would be anything but typical of the Christian life. So church, let's make it so. Let's make this typical if it's not already. And Paul now, in verse 24, gives this illustration to help encourage us in our efforts. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. In, in Corinth, a pine wreath. But we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The athletes in the, in the Corinthian, the Isthmian games, be easier to say that if I was Greek, they had to show up 10 months before the event. If they didn't train the entire time and do everything that they were expected to do the entire time, especially the month leading up to when they were under the direct supervision of the game's coordinators, they were disqualified. They couldn't participate. Paul didn't want to be disqualified. Now, the self-control thing, I think, should be easy to figure out. Uh, why do professional athletes not sit on their couch all day in front of the TV eating donuts and, and cheeseburgers and never hitting the gym? Why don't they do that? Well, that lack of self-control will cost them the game, right? They beat their bodies into submission in order to pursue victory for a prize that will perish. And the Word of God challenges us here, Christians. First Timothy 4. Train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, sometimes it's a little value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of all full, of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive. To this end we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. The spiritual disciplines, like prayer, studying the Bible, serving, faithful participation in our worship gatherings, etc., they are called spiritual disciplines for a reason. And we are being encouraged here to exercise self-control in these things like we're trying to win something. Because we are. That ought to encourage us to press on. The question then becomes, what are we trying to win? What is this prize that is imperishable? And we might be quick to say, well, our heavenly rewards, like our crowns, or that passage about the gold, silver, precious stone, that stuff. We might say, heaven! Or even better, Jesus himself! 
Paul called Jesus our greatest prize in Philippians 3. And all of these prizes are great, obviously, and all of them are imperishable and worthy of our excitement. But what is the specific prize that Paul's referring to here in 1 Corinthians 9? Uh, By the way, we don't just get one prize. Sweet. But what is this prize that we're reading about here? Well, what was the reward that he saw in Corinth as a result of his preaching? He called it his reward. Who was the seal of his apostleship? Paul saw his reward in that there was a church in Corinth where there wasn't one before. His prize was the church. It was them, those people. And because these people, all those who put their faith in Christ are given eternal life, this prize is an imperishable prize. They will live forever. Somehow, church, look around you. All these brothers and sisters that you see sitting around you today, having come together to worship Jesus, they are a prize. They're a prize. It kind of changes the way we see each other, doesn't it? It should. And if there are people here today that do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, if you're here today and you've never turned to the Lord for forgiveness, for salvation, we want to share with you this gift. To know of God's love for you and to become a part of the family of God. Be one to Christ today. And church, if you are coming here, if you're reading your Bibles, if you're listening to music or watching shows, if you're spending time with people, if you're getting on social media, if you're teaching, cleaning, driving, or any other way you could serve or participate in the life of the church, all in order to get, all in order to receive for ourselves, for myself, in order to have a good old time, If that's what church is to you, if that is what it's become, then this is the big challenge. This is what this passage is teaching. If that's what I'm doing, then I'm like a runner in a race who totally ran out of my lane. I'm headed this way and that, like there's not even a race going on. And Bob Costas is on TV, totally bewildered by my actions as I run around chasing a butterfly while there's an eternal gold medal at stake. What is he doing? This is a tragedy, he says on NBC, right? Or, you're like a boxer. And when that bell rings to start the round, you turn to the side and start going through some sort of aerobics exercise routine like you're doing Taibo. Just doing it for exercise, punching into the air, totally oblivious to the fact that your opponent has your ear in his sights. And he's about to land the blow. So here's the challenge. When you run, run in a straight line toward the finish line. Fast. (laughs) When you're in the ring, and if you're a Christian, you are. Always. When you're in the ring, punch like you're intending to hit something. Punch like you want to win. Pray. Meet people. Tell them about Jesus. And here's something that's really sweet about this. How many times have you heard someone say, I thought I was serving them, but 
I ended up being the one who was blessed. Do you know why that happens? Because the people around you and the people who, who could be sitting around you in the future, they are a prize. An imperishable prize. They're a taste of heaven to come. And they're a part of heaven to come. When we, when we serve the Lord and serve our neighbors in an effort to win them to Christ and to mature disciples of Jesus Christ, we get to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's good. It's even better than what we thought we were getting before. We realize that all the perishable prizes the world has to offer, even the ones that we invent in our own minds, even the ones we invent in our minds that we think we can get through our selfish manipulation of what church is supposed to be, those prizes are all cheap substitutes for the prize that God has for us. I'm going to finish with this. In Proverbs 11.30, it says that he who wins souls is wise. In our devotions right now, I'm going to contrast this with a guy named Nabal. His name means fool. 1 Samuel 25.11, Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who I don't know where they're from? What's Nabal thinking about? He's being a me monster, isn't he? I, I, me, my, my. If we're not careful, we start thinking like, this is my seat. This is my music. This is my ministry. This is my house. This is my lawn. Get off my lawn. This is my neighborhood. Don't you move in here. This is my town. This is my Facebook account. No, it's not. It's not, church. If you want a, an, a, an example of beating the air, check out the internet right now. My goodness. Church, we have been bought with a price. We are under the law of love in Jesus Christ. So let's use all of the things that God has given us as stewards. It's His. All of it's His. In order to love Him and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's become all things to all people that by all means we might save some in everything we do. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for your great love for us. We are not uh, your children today because we deserve it. We are not your children today because of our awesomeness or our ability to keep some sort of law that we've written for ourselves. We're not here today because we're Americans. We're not here today because we live in Mount Pleasant or in Isabella County or anything like that. We're sinners. And you loved us and you gave us Jesus Christ. He died on the cross and he paid for our sin. And you graciously rose us up from the dead and gave us eternal life. And we are no better We are no more significant than any other soul on the face of this earth. So God, please give us compassion for the lost. I pray that we would see this endeavor, this thing that you've called us to as the church, as the greatest ambition we can take, we can undertake. That we would see people as souls who need a Savior. That we would want them to have the joy that we can have in Christ that we would want you to be praised by their mouths and by their actions for your glory. 
And that, Lord, we would value the things you value so that we will also call it our gain. That we really could say that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that that would result in actions that are in keeping with what what Christ has called us to do. Lord, please use us. Use us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and may we prize the precious possession of saints being born, of people coming to faith, watching you build your church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.